are continuing in our Elements series, and this is a series of um, discipleship lessons. And uh, some of what we cover may be repetitive or familiar to you, but hopefully as we go through it, it will spark an inspiration maybe, or uh, maybe you'll see things just a different facet or from a different angle than maybe you had thought about it before. The, the Apostle Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, if you don't think it was Paul, said Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed to those things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And this portion of the element series that we're going through has been dealing with doctrinal issues. And, uh, you know, pastor dealt with the nature of God and uh, Brother Landon last Wednesday night talked about the church and we'll cover a couple of different areas. It is... um, Honestly, I, I always consider it a privilege whenever we're able to get together and talk about the Word of the Lord and and for me to be able to share from the Word of God is one of the great privileges of my life. But I am especially thankful tonight because we're going to talk about the new birth. And this is honestly one of my favorite things to talk about because I think it is so key to the understanding of the life that we are able to live and that the Lord would ask for us to live in the New Testament. This is an important uh, doctrine, if you will. And I would say it is the central doctrine of the New Testament. Now, I know when people think about apostolics, they have a lot of different things that they characterize us by or they think distinguish us. Maybe it's our manner of worship. Maybe it's our lifestyle. Maybe it's the way that we dress. That's primarily people who look at us from the outside. They see these distinctive characteristics. Even internally, we may think of things like our understanding of the nature of God as being important, and it certainly is. But I would make the case that the new birth really is the central doctrine because that's where the nature of God is brought to bear and it is from that new birth where all of these other lifestyle and uh, worship distinctives, they all spring from the new birth. So in my mind, this is the most central doctrine that identifies us and establishes, frankly, a difference between apostolics and the rest of Christianity. And one reason why I feel so strongly about this is because this is the doctrine that is most readily and and most often under attack. Uh, Maybe not explicitly, but there are lots of different ideas and different versions going around of what it means to be saved what it means to be a Christian. And for me, according to the scripture, I believe that the new birth is central to understanding that. What does it mean to be a New Testament Christian? So let me, let me just back up a little bit, and maybe this will help to explain why I, why I feel so strongly about this. Because, first of all, what is the nature 
what is the nature of God? If you ask somebody, what is the key characteristic of God? What is it that characterizes God? We might think of his greatness or his transcendence, the fact that he exists outside of time and space, and that certainly is a divine characteristic. His love is certainly different than any love that we would know humanly possible. His mercy is different and unique. His degree of mercy and grace toward us. And these are all valid characteristics of God. But I would say, and I believe I have scripture for this, that the central characteristic of God is his holiness. His holiness. There is no other characteristic of God that is more emphasized in Scripture than holiness. You never hear... Now, God is associated with light. He brings illumination. He brings understanding. But nowhere in the Scripture do I find any writer saying, God is light, light, light. And the reason why I mention that is because that is a characteristic of the ancient languages and especially Hebrews, whenever there was something that was repeated, it was repeated for emphasis. Now we see things like good, better, best, or big, bigger, biggest, great, greater, greatest. In the Hebrew, they would just repeat it twice for emphasis and three times was the ultimate. And you remember when you're in grade school and, uh, your teacher would correct you when you, you tried to take it to the fourth degree and say, more greatest. No, there's nothing greater than the greatest, more biggest, right? You're trying to one-up all the other kids on the playground. It doesn't work that way. And that's the way it is in Hebrew. When they said three times, that is the pinnacle. And the only characteristic I find that is emphasized in that way is holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a great vision of God sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And there are these angels flying around this majestic throne scene that Isaiah sees, and they are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see that. He is love, but he is not love, love, love. I think maybe if we paid more attention to God's holiness... In our modern Christian world, the emphasis is on the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. But if we took a real scriptural view and focused on the holiness of God, we would probably be less likely to live as cavalierly as some do. And when we recognize this, God's holiness, in Leviticus he said, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And... When God created man, Genesis chapter 1, he created him in his image. Man was the only part of creation that was in the image of God. God created him in that fashion for fellowship because I think there was something lacking in the rest of creation. There's, you know, it's one thing to have companionship of, um, of animals or of lesser beings, but there's nothing like a one-on-one relationship with someone else who is similar to you, who, a person, a human, that has the same understanding of thoughts and feelings and abilities to communicate. This is what God created mankind for. And when man fell, 
into sin, he broke that relationship. Now, the interesting thing to me is this happens in the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 3. Man disobeys, and by the end of chapter 3, he's been removed from the garden. He's been removed from fellowship. And the whole remainder of the book is written about God's effort to restore that relationship. Because God is so holy, his ability to interact with and have relationship with sinful man is limited. It is our sin that separates us. It was Adam and Eve's disobedience that caused them to be removed from the garden. And there was an angel with flaming sword put there to prevent them from coming back in. There was no human way to restore that relationship. And Isaiah even articulates this very clearly. Isaiah 59 too, he says, Your sins have separated you from God. So this is the story by the eighth verse of the third chapter of Genesis. Man is separated from God. And now God is on a mission to restore that relationship. Just to, as a, um, just to kind of give you a glimpse at the end of the story, you know what Paul said in the Corinthian letters, to wit, God was in Christ reconciling the world. His whole purpose, the reason for Christ's coming, was to reestablish that relationship. And you can see that the Lord takes off um, in different ways. He calls Abraham out. He calls him a chosen nation. And he begins to reveal himself to Abraham. And he gives the law. When we think of the law, the Old Testament, we need to think in terms of maybe the Ten Commandments is the simplest representation of the Old Testament law. But notice what happened with the giving of the law, the Lord gave the Ten Commandments, and then it wasn't very many chapters later, he was also giving them the plan for the tabernacle. Why is that? Because he knew they would break the commandments and they would need a way to have their sins rolled forward. But I want to be clear tonight, it is not that God gave the law and then that didn't work and so Jesus had to come. There wasn't God's understanding from the very beginning. The law was never intended to save. You can read Romans chapter 8. You know, we are familiar with verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. But if you just read on down to verse 3, Paul says, What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his Son, he accomplished those things. And what does he mean that the law was weak because of the flesh? Because the Lord gave commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And it was dependent upon my ability, your ability to fulfill those commandments. It depended on the strength of my flesh or your flesh to actually fulfill those commandments. The commandments did not change me. They were showing me what I needed to conform to. And so there was this external list of requirements, and I have to try to live up to that. Now, obviously, um, if one thing to notice, I think it's kind of interesting in the Scripture, starts off there's one rule. When they break that one, 
Then they get ten rules. They started breaking those, and the Pharisees wrote, what, 900 and some odd explanations about the ten. So they, they broke it down into more rules. Now, as time has gone on, we've become less and less moral. Now we have a legal code that really is beyond even anyone's understanding. Not only are there the laws that are made by Congress, which might be a few thousand pages each one, but then there are all the regulatory agencies and everything else constantly making laws to the point where, got to be a little bit careful, to the point where, since this is going out publicly, it is almost impossible for even God-fearing people to live an entire day without breaking some law or some regulation. And the further we get away from God, the more laws there are. And I'm not arguing against lawful society. I'm just saying laws have proven that they cannot save us. They cannot make us right. They can't make us whole. And so the law could not accomplish these things because it was weak through the flesh. It was dependent upon my nature, which, of course, had been broken. But even in the Old Testament and even under the law, there are a couple of glimmers of hope. And the Lord began to speak through what we call the major prophets. The Lord spoke through the prophets and gave a glimpse of what is to come. There's two passages I want to look at. Ezekiel chapter 36, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And this is the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel. And what the Lord says is, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now notice the imagery that Ezekiel is using. The Lord is saying, I will take your old stony heart out. Because that heart cannot be reformed. I can give you these laws, but your heart is set to disobey me. And it's stony, and it's hard, and it can't be changed. So I will take your old stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a tender heart, a heart of flesh. And in verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you. What a glimpse ahead. What a flash ahead to the new birth. He says, I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, I've used this analogy a lot, so some may have heard it. But it is part of our nature, our natural state is to breathe. This is a natural thing. And you know, sometimes little kids they throw a tantrum and they're going to hold their breath. Like that will really teach you if I hold my breath. But it's not something parents really need to worry about. Because even the most stubborn, they may hold their breath... But when they pass out and they become unconscious, that underlying nature kicks in and they start breathing again. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the way sin is. Without the Holy Ghost, 
I can make up my mind I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z, or I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to think bad things. I'm not going to wish evil on that person that is a thorn in my flesh. And I can set my jaw, and I can clench my fist, and I can just do my best. But ultimately, there's going to be some point that comes along where my subconscious sin nature just kicks in. And against my best effort, it just takes over. Now, what the Lord is saying in Ezekiel 36 is, I'm going to take that old stony heart that controls the way that you act when you're not thinking about it, your reflex. (laughs) That's how you know you got the Holy Ghost. Is when your reflex is to do the right thing. And the Lord said, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Now it's not so much dependent on my effort to do what the Ten Commandments say, but the Lord is promising that he would change our nature such that this would be the natural behavior for us, that we would be grieved to do something that would be counter. What a great promise. What a great hope. There is a similar passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. And the Lord is talking about a new covenant that he's going to make. Now, remember, he is talking to those for whom the covenant means the Ten Commandments, the law, Mount Sinai. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, verse 32 is kind of descriptive and almost parenthetical. Um, not according to the covenant. This, my new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant they break, although I wasn't husband to them, saith the Lord. It's almost like the Lord is muttering. I'm not, this is not going to be like the old one where I did them right and they did me wrong. I was a husband to them. They broke my covenant. This covenant is not going to be like that. But verse 33 says, but this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Not on tables of stone, but that fleshy, tender heart that Ezekiel was talking about. The Lord says, I'm going to write these things on that tender heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this to me is a perfect view of the new birth of what Jesus was talking about in John chapter three, when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is clearly what Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah are pointing to. I'm taking your old heart, your old nature. I'm taking it out. I'll give you a brand new nature. And I think when we start to look through the New Testament, we kind of see this fulfilled. Let me, let me show you. So John 3 talks about the new birth. We're familiar with Nicodemus and you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit And we've talked about that in recent times. This is really where the Lord is exposing the kernel of what he has in mind for the New Testament church. You must be born again. Your first birth is insufficient. That's ironic because Nicodemus came to him thinking, my first birth was probably pretty good. I mean, I was born 
I was born a Jew. I can reckon my lineage all the way back to Abraham. And, um, and now I'm a teacher. I'm a master in Israel. My first birth turned out pretty well. And the Lord just says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And he doesn't understand exactly what that means. The Lord describes it in some still what we might say is enigmatic ways, not really a lot of clarity. John chapter 7, though, the Lord gives another little insight. Verse 37, he's talking about he stands up at this feast, and it's a feast where they would pour out these water pots, and the water would flow, and it was, it was a commemoration of how the Lord brought them through the desert in the Old Testament in the wilderness. And the Lord stands up and he cries at that feast in the last day, that great day of the feast. Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And he says, he that believeth on me as the scripture has said out of his belly, that's a King James word, out of his innermost being, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Now John is writing much later. John was the last of the Gospels to be written. He wrote it late in life. He had the value of being able to look back and see how all of these pieces fit together. And so in verse 39, John provides an explanation. And it's ironic that in the King James, not all the translations do this, but in the King James, they even put it in parenthesis to make it clear John is explaining what Jesus was talking about. What is this river of living water? This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So if we string these little pearls together, we've got Ezekiel 36. I'm going to take your stony heart, give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to write my law in your heart. John 3, you have to be born again. John 7, you're going to receive the Spirit. It's going to be a river flowing out of you. We start to see these things kind of taking shape. And of course, the book of Acts is where all of the pieces come together. But before we jump into Acts, this is kind of the big picture. And I want to give you some nuts and bolts tonight. But before we dive into that, I want to look at the end of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Now, in our Bibles... John, the Gospel of John, sits between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But the truth is, Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and most scholars, commentators, think these were two volumes of really one book or two parts of one book that Luke was writing. We lose the sense of it sometimes because John is kind of stuck in there in between and we don't see the natural flow from Luke 24 to Acts 1. But look at Luke 24, 47, if you will. These are Jesus' last words. Now, we're, we often talk about Jesus' last words, Matthew 28, and we think of that version. Well, this is Luke recounting the same occasion and he's writing and he records things a little bit differently. He says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. So there's a few key things repentance, remission of sins in his name at Jerusalem. I send the promise of my Father upon you. So now let's jump to Acts chapter 1. 
and get a little bit of definition on some of these things. In Acts 1, Luke kind of has to weave the two parts together. He has to remind them of what he wrote in Luke, and he has to pick up the story again and go from there. So the first thing that he does in Acts chapter 1 is he's talking about how Jesus was there and ultimately how he ascended up. But notice what he said in verse 4, being assembled together with them. This is Luke again recounting Jesus' last moments on earth. Commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now he had said that in Luke 24. What is this promise of the Father? Well, he says, you have heard of this from me. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So what Luke is explaining here is that the promise of the Father is you've already you've heard of the baptism of John, he baptized with water. You are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the Father. And of course, Acts chapter 2, we're familiar with, this is where the promise was poured out. They were all in one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as a fire it set upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They all received the promise of the Father. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them evidence. Now, this causes a bit of a tumult when this happens because there were many Jews. At that time, the Jews were not all living in Israel or Judah or um, Galilee or Judea. They were dispersed all over the world. But there were certain times of the year they would come back to Jerusalem. The Feast of Pentecost was one of those times. And so if you continue reading... Verse 5 down through verse 13 or 14, you're going to find there's a lot of different nationalities of people that are there. And they are amazed because they hear all of these people speaking in languages that, where they came from. So it would be like somebody walking in here from Croatia or from Russia or from Singapore or from Malaysia or from China. And they would hear one of us who clearly were from around here, but they would hear us speaking in their language. They would be amazed to see someone like me speaking fluent Korean or fluent Croatian or Czech or any other language. This is, what, this is the scene that they walked in on. Now, it wasn't until a couple of years ago, Brother Bernard said something. So let me, let me just pause right here. There is a great resource on YouTube. Two summers ago, summer of 2019, Brother Bernard was at Pentecostals of Alexandria. They took a Sunday night and they asked him questions about the oneness of God and about the new birth. For two hours, they asked him questions and he gave them answers with no notes. It's on YouTube and it is... A great resource. If you just go to YouTube and you search David Bernard, what is truth? And you can throw in Pentecostals of Alexandria if you want to. But it will pop right up. And by the way, I have some handouts the ushers will have at the end of service. 
and there is a description of that, and there is a link there as well. It's about two hours long. But in the midst of this, Brother Bernard makes a point that I had never thought about. And um, when they ask the question, what meaneth this? They are talking about the tongues. They are talking about the speaking in tongues. Because they were amazed that they heard all of these people speaking in all of these languages. Now, what was Peter's response to their question, what meaneth this? He says, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. These tongues, these, this speaking in all of these languages, what it means is that this is an indication, this is a sign that God has poured his spirit out upon all flesh. That's what that means. And it had never just really clicked in my brain that that is what he, that's what they meant when they were saying, what meaneth this? The this was the speaking in tongues. They didn't understand what that meant. And this is why Peter said, they're not drunk like you think they are. It's just 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. But this is that that the prophets talked about. So he goes on down and he preaches his sermon. And by the way, if you just look at that sermon, he's pulling from the Psalms. He's pulling from the prophets. He's all over the map. And he tells them that they were, of course, the ones who had crucified the Lord of glory. They were pricked in their hearts, verse 37, and said, What shall we do? What did Jesus say? Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now remember Jesus' last words in Luke 24, 47. That repentance and remission of sins in his name would be preached in all nations starting at Jerusalem, Peter was fulfilling exactly what Luke recorded that the Lord told him to do. He was preaching repentance. He was preaching remission of sins in the name of Jesus through baptism, and it was starting at Jerusalem. What a great, what a great fulfillment of all of the things that God had worked and Peter was able to stand up and say, this fulfills all the prophecies. And this fulfills the prophecy of the Lord pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. It's going to be a common thing. You have to think how revolutionary that idea was. They were used to, and in fact had just come out of what we call the 400 years of silence between Malachi and the coming of Jesus, there had been no prophetic word that is really recorded. <clears throat> and think about how precious the word of the Lord was before that. There might be an old prophet somewhere who had lived his whole life that was hearing from the Lord, but it was not a common thing. And what Joel was saying was when the Lord pours out his spirit, even your kids are going to prophesy. And your your old men will dream dreams. It's young guys that dream about big things. But, but Joel said, hey, the Spirit of the Lord is going to turn things upside down. Even your old men are going to have great plans. 
And even your young men are going to see visions. They're going to hear from the Lord. It's not going to be 50 years on the backside of the desert before they get a word from the Lord. They're going to have visions, and, and it will be a common thing. So, obviously, seems like this is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the, clearly fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. This is being born again. But some folks object to all of this. They say all of this isn't necessary. Um, but some say, well, the scripture says that when I believe, when I call on the name of the Lord, I'm going to be saved. I, I think I received the Spirit when I believed on the Lord. When I called on the Lord, it was at that moment that I received the Spirit. Some people say, well, Acts 2.38 says, repent, be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So when I got baptized, I received the Holy Ghost when I got baptized, even though I never spoke with tongues. I just got it when I was baptized. That's what the scripture says. Some people say, when I accepted the Lord, there was this great burden that was lifted off me, and I felt such joy, and I felt so light. And I know that that feeling of joy, that was the Holy Spirit. When I accepted the Lord, I just felt that. And some people say, well, I, I, I don't need all of that. Why is baptism even necessary? But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? There are four occasions in Acts where people received the Holy Spirit. And they're very interesting. The first one is, of course, Acts chapter 2, which we just talked about. Those were all Jewish people at Jerusalem. They received the Spirit. Acts chapter 8 was in Samaria. So the Samaritans received the Spirit. Now the Samaritans, just a really brief history, they, were, they had a Jewish history but they had intermarried with the heathens, and so they were, they were a mixed race and typically and generally despised by the Israelites. So, but there could have been some justification in, in the Jewish mind that, well, the Lord is calling home all of the ancient Israelites, and he's bringing them home, and so they're Samaritans, and that's why they received the Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, though, Cornelius' house, he was a Roman. There was no Jewish blood in his history. God reached to the Gentiles. And then in Acts chapter 19, Paul found some believers, again, Gentiles, no Jewish background, in Ephesus, and he spoke to them. And what I want to do in our remaining time together I want to walk backwards through those three additional occurrences, Acts 8, 10, and 19. Now, sometimes you will hear us when we say, we talk about speaking in tongues. And let me be very clear. Speaking in tongues when you receive the Spirit is different than the gift of tongues. Some people will point to Paul and say, not everyone gets the gift of tongues. Agreed. Wholeheartedly agree. But also notice, Paul gives some rules and regulations about the exercise of the gift of tongues. That it should be tongues and interpretation by course. And that no more one person speaking at a time, no more than two or three courses. He gives all of these regulations about how the gift is to operate. But on the day of Pentecost, 
none of those rules were followed. So clearly what was happening at Pentecost was different than the gift of tongues. And sometimes what we say is that tongues was the consistent sign of receiving the Spirit. Or we may say things like, speaking in tongues is the initial sign and evidence of having received the Spirit. I searched for those words, and I couldn't find them. I wish they were in there. It would make life a lot simpler if they were in there. They're not explicitly in there, but if we will look at what the Scripture teaches, we will see them not in those words, but we will see that those words capture the essence of these occurrences that happened in the New Testament, people receiving the Spirit. Let's take Acts 19, first of all. You know, some people say, when I received, when I believed, when I called on the name of the Lord, I received the Spirit. But if you read Acts chapter 19, Paul found these believers, and what was the first thing he asked them? Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He knew they were believers. But for Paul, there was an understanding that receiving the Spirit was a separate experience following belief. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? They said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. What are you talking about? I don't understand. So he says, oh, here's some people that don't don't understand it all. Let me probe a little bit. So he says, how were you baptized? And they said, well, unto John's baptism. And he said, did you not hear the Lord say? John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people, they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And so the response was, in verse 5 of Acts chapter 19, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's a key scriptural precedent. If you were baptized any other way than in the name of the Lord Jesus, here is scriptural precedent for being rebaptized correctly. Paul gave them no hard time for their previous experience and the way that they had been baptized, but he said there is a, a better way, there is a greater way, Christ has something more for you, and they were rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And notice verse 6 then, when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So again, very explicitly, when they received the Holy Ghost, they were filled with the Spirit. So two key things out of Acts 19. The sign of speaking with tongues upon receiving the Spirit is there. And also a biblical precedent for rebaptism if you have not been baptized in Jesus' name. So let's go back to Acts chapter 10, working our way backwards. This is the story of Cornelius' house. And what is interesting to me about this story, this is, by the way, one of my favorite chapters in all of the scripture because it's because of Acts 10 that we're all here tonight, right? This is me. And the Lord knew that he needed to work on Peter. Now, Cornelius was praying and he was fasting and an angel appeared to him, but the Lord knew this wasn't going to be real easy. Peter's, with all due respect, kind of a hardhead. So he sent a vision to Peter and uh, you know how the, the drape or the, 
was let down and there were all sorts of animals in there and and Peter was hungry. He was waiting for the evening meal to be prepared. He's up on the housetop and all of a sudden he fell into this trance and the Lord lowered down this sheet and in there were all manner of animals and the Lord said, take and eat. Peter said, no, no, not me because I'm Jewish. These things are not kosher. This is not for me to eat. And the Lord said, what I've called clean, don't you call common or unclean. And that happened three times. And Peter was thinking, well, what is the Lord trying to tell me? And about the time he asked that question, messengers from Cornelius show up because Cornelius, an angel, had visited him and said, send men to Joppa. And this is amazing. You see an angel. Notice this. The angel does not tell Cornelius what to do. Angels are not going to preach the gospel. It's up to us. And the angel appeared to Cornelius and he said, send men to Joppa and go to Simon the Tanner's house and there's one Simon Peter who's lodging there. I mean, this is very specific. This is not, I just have a feeling that somebody somewhere is getting healed. This was an angel with a specific word for Peter or for Cornelius rather. He did exactly as he was told. He sent the messenger. The messenger arrived at the perfect time. Peter winds up going back with them. Notice it's two or three day journey. They make their way back. What I love about this is when by the time Peter gets there, Cornelius is a man of such great faith because the angel said, when you send for Simon, he's going to come. He's going to show you what you need to do. He had such faith that he had gathered his whole family together and they were waiting for Peter to arrive. And when Peter walked in the door, Cornelius fell down to worship. Peter said, no, no, you've seen an angel, but that's not me. You need to stand up. I'm a man just like you. But what is beautiful about this is Peter says, I perceive, I finally, it's dawning on me that God is no respecter of persons. And he began to just tell them, talk to them about the Lord. And notice what happens in verse 44 of Acts chapter 10. While Peter yet spake these words, while he was talking to them, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision... Peter was smart enough. It was not appropriate for a Jewish man to go into a Gentile home. But he knew the Lord had told him to go, so he took witnesses. Smart guy. And those of the circumcision, the Jewish men that went with him, they were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. How did they know that? Verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now Peter says, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? This tells me baptism is not a step toward receiving the Holy Ghost. Baptism is a key component of the new birth. And if you repent and you cry out to God and God gives you the Holy Ghost on credit, you need to be baptized anyway. You need to follow up. He's given it to you trusting that you're going to get baptized. This is not, you know, in James, he says, if any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. They'll anoint him with oil, lay hands on the sick, they'll recover. 
But, you know, if you're sick at home and you pray or you have your kids pray for you, by the way, that's a good idea. Kids have great faith. You get sick, ask the kids to pray for you. They need a sandwich or something. They, they'll pray in faith. But if you pray for yourself or somebody prays for you at home and you're healed, you don't have to come the next service and have the elders anoint you. The anointing is to focus faith and build faith. And, but that's not what baptism does. If you get the Holy Ghost, it's on you. You are obligated to get baptized in Jesus' name. But the other beauty of this is that those Jewish men that were there were absolutely astonished that the Gentiles were receiving the Holy Ghost as well as we, they said, in verse 47. What's really beautiful is if you go to the next chapter, Acts 11, when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, he definitely gets called on the carpet. And they call him in and say, so the Holy Ghost has been poured out on the Gentiles. What were you doing in a Gentile's home? Peter said, let me tell you the story. He told him about his vision. He told him about Cornelius' vision. And then he says, <laughs> I just love this, while I was talking, it is as though Peter says, I never touched them. <laughs> I didn't lay hands on them. I didn't give them the Holy Ghost. While I was talking, the Holy Ghost fell on them. And you know what the scripture says? The scripture said they held their peace and they rejoiced because that on the Gentiles, that unto the Gentiles had been granted repentance unto life. Peter told them the Holy Ghost fell on them just like it did on us at the beginning. And what was I that I could withstand God? I didn't do it. God did it. So what am I supposed to do? I have no choice. I have to baptize them. I think that's why they got the Holy Ghost first because Peter would have been hard-pressed to baptize them if he had not known clearly what God was doing and what God was up to. And when he told it to those that were back in Jerusalem, they held their peace and they even rejoiced. Notice this. Sometimes people will tell you the Holy Ghost, is that's an add-on. Not everybody gets that. You can be saved without having the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 11 they rejoiced because they saw that unto the Gentiles had been granted repentance unto life. They equated receiving the Holy Ghost with salvation. For them, receiving the Spirit was the saving experience that they expected. So again, the clear sign, the thing that was convincing was the fact that they spoke with tongues. Now, I'm almost out of time, so let's go to Acts chapter 8. And this is the Samaritan revival. Philip goes down to Samaria, and he preaches Jesus. And this is the one occurrence that does not explicitly mention tongues. Acts 2 mentions tongues. Acts 10 mentions speaking in tongues. Acts 19 mentions speaking with tongues. Acts 8 does not. But let's look at what happens. When Peter goes there, or Philip rather, goes there and he begins to preach, the scripture said the Samaritans, they gave heed to Philip. They believed what he was saying concerning Jesus. And if you'll notice, they had great healings and great miracles. They had people who were sick of the palsies had been healed. People were, who were oppressed of the devil had found deliverance. And the scripture said there was great joy in that city. 
Some people say, when I accepted Christ, I felt so much joy, it had to be the Holy Ghost. But in Acts chapter 8 is explicit. Luke says that when Philip preached to them, they had all these great miracles. We would think that was a great revival. We have these miracles. There's joy. People running the aisles. People shouting and receiving deliverance. But it is explicit that they had not received the Holy Ghost even though they had been baptized in Jesus' name. So notice this. Receiving the Holy Ghost is a distinct experience from repentance and accepting and even being delivered from demonic oppression. It's a separate experience from being healed of a sickness and it is a separate experience from feeling great joy and it is a separate experience from baptism in Jesus' name. They had all of those things but they sent to Jerusalem for Peter and John to come down and pray for them that they would receive the Spirit. Now, when Peter and John prayed for them, they laid their hands on them and they received the Spirit. So, clearly, there was some experience that was missing before that was present when Peter and John laid their hands on them. And, in fact, it was so striking And so clear and so distinctive that Simon the sorcerer was there and he said, Hey, I'll give you money if you can teach me how to do that. And Peter said, Your money perish with you. You don't have any part of this. Transmission of the Holy Ghost is something given by God. So there was clearly something that happened in Samaria to let them know that the Holy Ghost had been given. There are commentators, even non-apostolic commentators, who agree in order to be consistent with the rest of the narrative in Acts, it had to be speaking with tongues. What other sign would it have been? If it was something else, the writer would have made it clear. But because the precedent had already been set, the writer didn't need to make it clear. They had Everybody knew that on the day of Pentecost, they had received the Spirit and they spoke with tongues. When they went to Samaria, they did not receive the Spirit, and then they did receive it. How did they know? It was because they spoke in tongues. So it seems to me very clear that our message about the new birth, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, clearly follows the biblical precedent. It was the expectation of the first century apostles. When it was not present, they prayed for it to come. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Jesus said, you know where the wind blows. You can hear the sound of it. And the same is with the new birth. When, you're, when a baby is born the first time, it cries out. And when you're born again, it's going to come out your mouth. The Lord is going to take over your tongue and he's going to miraculously show you that he is in control and that you have been born again. Why don't we stand together tonight? I've given a lot of information. But really, the important thing is like the prophet in the Old Testament said, when we were born again, Our old stony heart was taken out of our flesh. And the Lord has given us a tender heart 
upon which he can write his laws and he can lead us. This is the thing that separates apostolic Christianity from everything else in the world. In the Garden of Eden, man sinned and was separated from God. The new birth reconciles man back to God. It puts the divine nature back into us and it puts us on a path for one of these days being face-to-face, reunited in fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. Having the Holy Ghost is not about just speaking with tongues. It's not about meeting some series of criteria. But the Spirit of God transforms our hearts and changes our nature. And it gives us the power to overcome sin. This is the part that deserves the rejoicing. Is that the things that would have defeated us before, the Spirit living on the inside of us gives us the power to overcome and to live in victory over sin. Things that would have destroyed us before the Holy Ghost gives us power to overcome. Why don't we offer thanks to the Lord tonight in closing? Lord, we're so thankful for what you have done. Your great work that you have done in the founding of the church and providing for us a pathway in which to be born into your body, to be baptized into the body of Christ. What a tremendous privilege, Lord, that you who were rich, you became poor for our sakes, that we through your poverty might be made rich. You, Lord, who knew no sin, took on sin in order to give us the righteousness of God. And through your spirit, Lord, we are able to overcome. And we know that that day is coming when we will be perfected and we will be glorified and we will be with you throughout the ages. What a great hope and promise we have because of the new birth that you have given to us. We're so thankful tonight, Lord. We give you honor and glory. Let's offer a hand clap again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, praise the Lord on your way out tonight. The ushers have some handouts. If you would like to avail yourself of those, I tried to capture as many of the main ideas as I could. And then also, of course, if you have offering tonight, they will accept that as well. So the Lord go with you and keep you and protect you and bring us all back together at the appointed time. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you.